1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, ginormous guest, the legend Billy Bragg from the band Riff Raff, from his own solo work, from his collaboration with Wilco, from just a legend. A legend, a genuine legend. More on that in a second, but first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother, and the guy who runs the Facebook page, and the guy who runs the Instagram page, Tristan Abraham, and guest booker extraordinaire. For people that are hitting me up right now saying, my gosh, the booking has been incredible lately, don't thank me, thank Tristan. He's the one who hit me up and said, what about Billy Bragg? And I'm like, I love Riffraff. and here we are, so... Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do. If you would like to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me at left for Damien on both Instagram and Twitter. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to support the podcast is just telling everyone you know, letting everyone know that, you know, that we have a podcast where we have a pretty good range of guests all talking about punk rock. And that's how we spread the word. You can also support the podcast by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice. Or by heading over to patreon.com slash turnedoutapunk and uh, getting involved over there. We do footnotes and thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone over there who has been involved and helped us. Uh, We've had some technical problems lately and without that Patreon, I don't know if this podcast would still be going on. You know, because I... The money's tight around the podcast sometimes. So, you know, and it would be even tighter without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came on board a couple years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just, just don't do it out of your pocket. And they've helped me cover a lot of these costs for this thing. It's, it's, it's expensive to run a free podcast, you know, like it's, uh, yeah, it it takes a little bit of money. So thank you so much to the fine folks at Vans for, uh, for helping me out and be my buddies there. You know, I hung out with a bunch of people over a zoom chat. This week, and we talked music, and uh I miss them so much, because normally I'd be seeing them all summer long at those House of Vans events, and I have not, so thank you, thank you to everyone at Vans, Brianna and, and, and Brooke, and yeah, thank you, thank you to them. Uh All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, we have uh, a legend, as I said off the top, Billy Bragg is here. Now, Billy Bragg is someone that... I'm pretty sure most of us are familiar with. If you're not familiar with Billy Bragg, he is, you know, a, 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 a troubadour beyond reproach. He is a British songwriting legend, uh, international songwriting legend, and uh, someone I've always wanted to talk to because, you know, like he, he he's done all that and you can hear interviews where people talk to him about that pretty extensively and about his involvement with politics and, you know, and not to undermine any of that because that all is very important, but... When Billy Bragg was going to come on this show, you know we're going to be talking to him about his first band, Riff Raff, you know, and so <laughs> the chance to sit down and talk to Billy Bragg about God, one of the one of the great Chiswick punk bands, you know, I think that signal I single, sorry, I want to be a cosmonaut, is a classic that stands up there with uh, with all the great punk songs of the era, you know, like it is, it is truly like a, a top tier punk record. And I had so many questions, and by God, Billy Bragg answered them. I don't think uh, you need me to ramble on anymore. You want to hear Billy Bragg talk? And I assure you, this is one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. Oh my gosh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I don't, I don't even think I have any notes to get to this week. No, that's it. Um, so, uh, yo, check out Billy Bragg's actually triple LP, Best of the BBC Sessions, which came out on Cooking Vinyl uh, last year. And uh, it's 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 a monster. It's a monster. It got a lot of classic cuts. Billy Bragg is one of those artists who, you know, uh, obviously a an incredible discography of records, but some of these sessions that he did at the BBC, whoo, ooh, chillin' chillin'. Okay, that's it. Uh, I got nothing else to waste your time with this week. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Billy Bragg on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Billy, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: My pleasure, mate. Good to speak to you.
1: Well, as I was just telling you off air, you played an OCAP rally here in Toronto years ago, and that was a real pivotal show for me, and I think, uh, you know, really impacted how I felt like musicians uh, have an obligation to act, so I, you know, just to thank you personally for that off the off the bat.
0: My pleasure. You know, I've, I've always tried to sort of do a little bit more than just sing about it, to actually try and you know engage with what's going on rather than just uh, reflecting it and it, it, if you try you'd be surprised out what impact it can have well i am
1: very excited to talk to you not just for that kind of you know sort of gems that you kind of just give out like that but also because i am a huge huge fan of riffraff so let's <laughs> get started the way they all start off here on the show Billy. Yeah. how did you get in a punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre
0: Yes, I do. I do. Um, obviously, you know, there were when I was 19 years old, 18, 19 years old, there were three really good music papers in the UK. There was uh, New Musical Express, Enemy, um, Melody Maker and Sounds. And I think Sounds had really got onto punk, but I hadn't heard anything. And then a friend of mine came around with a reel to reel tape machine and he had the first damned album on this reel-to-reel tape machine. Like a reel-to-reel version of the first damn record? I think he taped it off someone. Okay, okay, totally. In the old days before Walkmans and all that kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. I think he'd been to someone's house and taped it from them. And so he was bringing it round to to us to, you know, to bring the good news that punk had arrived. And he played it. And, and me and Wiggy, my my kind of like best pal, and the guy taught me to play guitar I was in a band with, we were absolutely convinced he was playing it at the wrong speed. <laughs> We're like, no way, no way is this the new music. It's the wrong speed, man. You've recorded it wrong. And my friend's going like, no, this is it. This is actually it. So we were, were, I'll be honest with you, we were a little sceptical about punk to start with. I think um, I had a sense that it was, um, some of the bands seemed to me to have a bit of an art school sensibility, you know, painting their trousers and stuff like that. And I was rather suspicious of all that, that it would just be like, um, really would be just like uh, um, Roxy Music or something. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was kind of a bit standoffish. But the, the one punk band that really did impress us was The Jam. And I think what was different about The Jam was they had, they seemed to have a more working class ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't like, look like they'd been to art school, whereas The Clash and The Pistols looked a bit art schooly. So the jam are also referencing the kind of music that me and my friends had been listening to that summer. So early Stones, early Who, early Small Faces. So we went to see the jam and we were quite enamored of the jam for a while in, in small in small pubs in London. We would go and see them. And their first single um, in the city. I bought that and just thought that was brilliant.
1: Were you aware of like bands like you know Doctor Feelgood and and sort of uh, like that kind of pub rock scene that was going on at the same time, or even like a band like Juke? Because you guys would eventually do a split with Juke. Like I
0: I wasn't aware of Juke, but I was definitely aware of Doctor Feelgood. Although at the time I didn't realize what what a precursor they were. In many Mm. ways, the Feelgoods are like the British uh, Ramones. Absolutely, yeah. You know they've they've gone back to basics and they're connecting with some essential um, core of guitar music at a time when so much guitar music was going. I don't know where it was going. You have to. You only have to listen to. Um, I can't think what his name was now, but there was a guy who had a hit single the summer '76 called "Music Was My First Love." It might have just been called "Music." Mm-hmm and he was a guitar player and it was just so it was orchestral it was oh, it was all over the place it was like oh you're kidding me <laughs> and all of a sudden the, the field come coming it's just not only did they punch a hole in that almost physically but they look like they really don't care what you think about them mm-hmm. in fact you better not look at Lee Brillo because he'd probably beat you up if he catches you looking at him and then with Wilco Johnson you've got this and, you know, guitar anti-hero, he's not trying to give you the impression that he's some kind of God. He's giving you this kind of twitchy thing that's kind of almost the, the. well, in my school, it's the kind of um, behavior that would have gotten you beaten up by everyone. And for this to be up on stage and be lauded, It really really was a a real shock to our system. And he did this incredibly revolutionary thing that I'd never seen anybody do before. And that was, he did up the top button of his shirt. (laughs) And that was so the opposite of what the Bee Gees were doing with Saturday Night Fever, where their shirts were up to their airy belly buttons. Yeah, Yeah. That it was just, I don't know, it just... The thing about the field goods was they were kind of unprepossessing blokes. And there's a lot of us out there, you know, I'm an unprepossessing bloke. Weller was an unprepossessing bloke. Costello, Ian Dury, you know, I mean, we're all unprepossessing blokes. And the, and the field goods kind of made that cool and tough and edgy. So although we were into the field goods, because they also fit into that, um aesthetic that I'm talking about that early guitar aesthetic the key thing about them was they were older than us or rather the key thing about the jam was they were the same age it's really that way around the key yeah. thing about the jam was they were the same age as us and that was the that experience of seeing someone on stage the same age as you that's in a band doing something that people like that was um that idea really took off for me and my friends when we went to see the clash now, the reason we went to see The Clash was because the jam was supporting them, and we believed that the jam would show these art school fellas what, you know, what real music was about. Yeah. It was at the Rainbow, which was a big gig in North London where all the bands played. I think we'd been there. I think we'd been there to see the Small Faces revival earlier that year, which wasn't great, I'll be honest with you. But um, it wasn't just the... the uh, jam and the clash it was the white Riot tour so it was the jam the clash the buzzcocks the subway sect uh and people say the slits played as well but i don't remember that but it might have been that we got there late and they did play but i don't remember see i think i would remember seeing the slits you'd never forget that surely but um that day at the at that night at the rainbow a couple of things happened um the jam—it was just too big for the jam. They hadn't worked out how to play a stage that was, you know, f- five times wider than the one at the Nashville rooms. Whereas the Clash seemed to have it, and the Clash were throwing all the shapes and and that we really liked about the Stones and the Who, which was what my me and my friends had been listening to before. But the key thing about it was they were our age, and they were up there headlining where we'd seen our heroes. Where we—this is the place where we went to see our heroes. So going to see the clash. We came away, re- realize the realization that you don't actually need someone to come along and tell you to be in a band. You just be in a band. That's how you do it. They're just, you just do it, you know, and that's what we did.
1: You mentioned that small faces revival show. Did Coxbar open that show? Do you remember?
0: Oh dear. Cause they now did a tour. Now you're really asking me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, again, I don't remember. I don't remember that. Okay. but. Uh, it is possible because they were they did uh, do some shows around that time, didn't it? But the Cox Barrow used to play at the um, our local gig, which was the Bridge House at Canning Town. That was kind of because we lived in East London. We wanted we wanted kind of different circuit to the one that the Clash and the and the Jam regularly played. You know, they were in a very much of a West London circuit, and the East London circuit was a bit more heavy metal. Okay, you know, it was kind of a place where Iron Maiden came out of and stuff like that. You know, yeah, the trousers were just as tight, but the hair was longer. <laughs>
1: You you mentioned Ian Dury earlier. Um, Were you a fan of Kilburn
0: and the High Roads as well? No, I wasn't aware of Kilburn and the High Roads, I'll be honest with you. Okay. That might have passed me by. Mm -hmm. Um, The sort of thing we were listening to, I was listening to a lot of um, singer-songwriters in the sort of pre-punk period. But uh, something had happened, me and my pals were playing in in my parents' back room when my parents used to go out to uh, take my brother to swimming galas on Saturday night. We would rock up in our back room and, set up me, me and Wiggy playing guitars and Bob from around the corner playing drums. And we were basically doing stones who, bit of feel goods. There's a picture somewhere of me and Wiggy impersonating the Feel Goods. It's not a very good impersonation, but we were kind of on that on that tip. Oh that's awesome. Yeah. And that kind of played what happened in that summer, Robert's Robert round the corner, his parents went away for two weeks. We went and lived at his house for two weeks. And we all went out and bought the first two albums by the Stones, The Who and The Small Faces and just kind of really, really got into that. And the Shangri-Las as well, for some reason, they they were big in that period. And that's where we were when when punk happened. So how long after that uh, was it that Riff Raff starts? Oh, we'd already were playing. We were, we were already playing. That Riff Raff was more or less me and Wiggy on guitar, Bob on drums and whoever came around to play the bass. Yeah, we were just knocking around in in, in back rooms, but we weren't really uh, tuned into punk rock. We used to there's a rehearsal studio up on the uh, A13 in Raynham, where we used to go and book the whole of Saturday night and just stay up all night playing. And when we look, when I look back at that, songs are starting to creep in. I thought we thought the um, Eddie and the Hot Rods live at the Marquee, our uh, EP was really good. Mm-hmm we we used to play uh, get out of denver very fast we kind of we kind of overcame our our fear of playing fast <laughs> and uh, but it wasn't until the summer of 77 where we decided that we wanted to go on holiday together somewhere where we could stay up all night and play all week and do some recording and we found this out of the way recording studio in Northamptonshire which is about 100 miles from london up up the middle of the country and we went up there and before we got there, I had already written I Wanna Be a Cosmonaut. Oh wow. So I'd already kind of made that leap. I'd heard, obviously I'd heard the Ramones at some point mm-hmm. and really liked the Ramones. And I'd moved on to trying to stop writing songs like The Rolling Stones and Jackson Brown and start writing songs like The Ramones and The Clash and The Jam. And that mm-hmm. was that was very fruitful um week i mean we had a great time and the, the the most important thing about it was the people who ran it who were they were old hippies you know but they were really cool people and they had music industry connections and they took us seriously as musicians as a band which our parents and our friends never did so it was a real watershed experience for us all in many ways we never came home me Wiggy and robert
1: we, you kind of talked about it earlier with the jam. Like, it's amazing how punk rock, um, you know, and, and, and rap music, obviously, now, but like, are, are some of the few places where it really privileges uh, youthful expression.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, that, not just youthful expression, but, um, you know, a, a kind of uh, a self-empowering attitude. Very much. So. I mean, that, you know, punk to me was all about self-empowerment. And and so I, that's why I still think of myself in those terms, because, you know, if I want to do something, if I want to write a book, I don't ask someone if I can write a book. I write it. Yeah. You know, that's I've got no I don't need the justification to 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 do something. But, you know, I don't need the qualifications. I just kind of go and do it. Although I, I will admit to wearing the torn trousers and, the, and the, the, you know, short hair and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it really was much more of an attitude to me. And I've got it a lot from, uh, you know, from In the City by the jam. You know, you better listen now. You've said your bit. You know, you've said your bit, mate. The older, the older generation have said their, what they had to say, you better listen now because I'm going to talk now. And that's a, that's a really, really empowering line. I mean, the more time passes, the more I, I realize how much more influence I really, if I was being honest, the jam were a much bigger influence on me than The Clash. I, I think also, just to go
1: back to I Want to Be a Cosmonaut, like, that is such a killer song. Like, it's just... <laughs> It rages so hard.
0: It does. I mean, we were full of uh, we were full of it. That and Romford Girls. Romford Girls. We, yeah. that We wrote that while we were up there. Stayed up all night recording those two. and woke up in the morning and it was dawn and we went outside and we were like, it's almost like we were reborn as new people. Really. It really felt like that. It felt like we weren't the same people that went in the studio before. Some blokes who, who were going to record a song. We were now a real band. And it, was, it really felt... Um, we, you know, we we stepped over a threshold and it's because the people who, who ran the studio, Ruin and Jackie O'Loughlin, believed in us and they gave us mm-hmm. that confidence to do to do that and be ourselves. You know, and, and the, the other great thing was they had really good contacts with Chiswick Records. Uh, Ruin was a musician who'd been in a number of bands. It, most recently when we met him, he'd been playing with Ronnie Lane out of Faces. It was another band that we were huge fans of. Um, mm-hmm. And he had good contacts with Chiswick Records, and he got us a little EP deal, which uh, we you know the Cosmonaut EP came out of that.
1: Was there like a, when you, when you said earlier that they were
0: hippies? Were they kind of part of that whole pink fairies kind of deviance kind of scene? No, no, just no. They were they were Ruin was come out of Ireland. He was a, a, a pub band called Bees Make Honey. Okay, who played on the on the in in they they were one of the key bands that kicked off the, the pub rock. Uh, phase by playing in Irish pubs around London, playing good time music in Irish pubs around London. And he played with a few other people. He played saxophone and we played everything really, but he's a really good saxophonist and he was a really good pianist. And in that sense, he'd been a sideman for Ronnie Lane on, on the uh, Slim Chance album. And that was an album that Wiggy and I, we really loved that record. We couldn't believe it when we got there and found out it was him. And, uh, it kind of was one of those moments of, you know, that connection that we, we with 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 the musicians that we deeply admired. And, uh, and his wife, Jackie, as well, really was really, really encouraging. Uh,
1: so was it only the four songs that you recorded that day or did you guys record more? No, we
0: recorded loads of stuff. We probably recorded about a dozen songs. And is that all stuff that's unreleased that's not on the other singles that came out? Uh, one or two of them might be I mean basically the place they ran was a place called Bear Shanks Mm -hmm. the name of the farmhouse studio and we did two big sessions there one in 1977 and another one in 1979 the 1979 one is a lot more sort of sharper and focused the 1977 one is kind of like a explosion in a song factory (laughs) (laughs) you know quick 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 Here's a tune. Write it down. Let's do it. I mean, we were, we was, you know, we didn't need any drugs that week because we were kind of high the whole time we were there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, we were just the, you know, we were just buzzing all the time we were there. We, we drank a lot of beer. And we, we wrote a lot of songs. we stayed up all night. And, um, and then we, we kind of started going up there on spare weekends when we could. And eventually, um, you know they got a few gigs in London. They got they got some. We we kind of became the uh, the default support band for Chiswick Records uh, artists beginning with R who were playing at the marquee. So the Radiators from Space, the Radio Stars. <laughs> yeah. The you know we kind of opened for all of them. It was cool. I mean to play at the marquee. I mean it was just you know again it was another dream come true for me. There's a pho- there's a photograph of me. Playing and shouting and pointing in front of a marquee sign, and if I would never done anything else ever again, just having that, I would have. I would have felt that I was a part of something really important. I was a part of punk rock.
1: Well, yeah, I was such a huge fan of that single, and like you know, only did I find out kind of years later that it was you that like I put it together. I'm like, oh shit, that's Billy Bragg, like the Billy Bragg. Yeah, it, it's it like, but it's like such a, a career
0: you had before your career. Yeah, it was really. Um, and that was, you know, uh, something that I'm inordinately proud of, you know, to have had a, a, a record out on, on Chiswick Records as well. One of the great indie punk labels oh, of all time. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I'm 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 very proud of. And what what came later is the continuation. It's not a stop and start. Mm-hmm. It's, all, it's all part and parcel. And we actually uh, we actually got together. It's in fact, it's the only gig I'm going to do this year by the look of things. Um, we got together for Wiggy's 60th birthday and did a show at Dingwalls. Oh, wow, that's awesome. It was awesome because we saw a lot of old friends there. Jackie O'Loughlin was there with her two sons. I'm sadly ruined, passed away in the 80s. Um, But, yeah, we were talking about, um, you know, maybe releasing the the songs that we recorded at Bearshanks at some point.
1: Oh, that'd be so awesome. Yeah, because, like... It is, it is like standalone, you know, like that, that single's a classic. And you, you mentioned Chiswick being one of the great labels. It's like 101ers, like obviously pre-clash stuff. And then you have like yourself, obviously, Johnny
0: Moped, Motorhead. Yeah. That Johnny Moped record was just absolutely amazing.
1: Oh, I, I was going to say, I love the second one. Let, let's have another oh, baby. Right.
0: Oh, yeah. That, that I mean, the album, the Psychedelic album, I was thinking of. Uh, and also, this sleeve designed by Barney Bubbles as well, which is an uh, uh, important part of the Billy Bragg thing. But yeah, there's a. If you go online, there's a there's a recording of uh, Kirsty McColl and myself singing, uh, "Darling, let's have another baby." Oh, really? What did that ever get released? Yeah, it did. I think it was on. It was on. Um, I think it was on one of her compilations and it's just on my most recent BBC, uh, Billy Bragg at the BBC compilation, because we did it for a radio show. It's live in the studio. There's two of us sitting around a microphone singing. It. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Uh, that's going to be the first thing I check out after we get off this
0: uh, podcast. Yeah, because that was that was, our con- you know, that was me and Kirsty's connection. I was a huge fan of Kirsty McCall when she was on Poly, uh, Polydor making her first solo albums. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that, um, you know, that she was in the drug addicts as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, I guess that's like another band, Drug Addicts as well, and also Radiators from Space, you know, like the pre poke stuff. It's, it's on They
0: were, the Radiators from Space were a really sharp band. We played with them a couple of times, and I was a huge admirer of the way they attack songs.
1: Yeah, those singles, like obviously not ever getting a chance to see them live, but those singles are just so, once, once again, just like rip just as hard today, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, like, where did you? What was it kind of like in that scene at that time? Like, what kind of kids were coming to see you at those shows? Was it like
0: punk rock kids, or was it more of a pub rock crowd? Or, well, looking back at it, um, it's you know you you can tell by the haircuts <laughs> yeah. that, that um, there there are some hardcore punks in the audience, but they don't really like us. But there are some other people who are you can tell by the haircuts that they've probably got a straight job. They're probably working in an office somewhere. Mm-hmm. But when they go out at night, they get dressed up and put on quite, I mean, what this, when we played in the marquee, one of the drum stands broke and a guy in a, a white coat, like a doctor's white coat with Dr. Psycho written on the back, <laughs> got out of the audience and held it. But I mean, a less psycho looking guy, you can't imagine. He had a cherubic face, curly hair, ginger. <laughs> uh, psycho was a cock Spaniel, to be honest with you. But, um, but, yeah, it was kind of uh, – it was a generational thing, I think. You know, if, I, if we did a gig with the radio stars, their audience was more of a pub rock audience. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas the audience that was coming to see the radiators was much more punk rock. Did you ever play with Motorhead? Did you ever open for them? No. I, I'm not sure Motorhead were on the label when we were. I think they might have been later.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's true as well. Like, it just it's such an amazing time that you have – you know, like obviously, you know, like the punk stuff that's taken up sort of in the mainstream, you know, coffee table book, history of punk rock, but also you have all these like amazing micro scenes happening that wind up becoming much more kind of important a few years later, but like, you know, be it Chiswick or Stiff Records, like was there any intermingling with the Stiff stuff that was happening or is it kind of separate worlds? Well, you you got to remember we were living
0: at Northamptonshire at the time. So what came up there, we would we would see that rather than be in London and being able to go to all the gigs. But there was something to mingle. And I remember Ruin and O'Loughlin, um, Ian Dury and the Blockheads were playing in Leicester at the De Montfort Hall, which was about 30 minutes from where we were. And he made a few phone calls and got us all tickets and we went to see them. So there clearly, you know, there was some connection. Yeah. And oddly, you know, Peter Jenner, who subsequently came on to manage me as in, in my Billy Bragg face, he was there that night and uh, i may well have snatched a plastic cup of sex and drugs and rock and roll badges out of his hand that he was distributed from the stage he wasn't quick enough he was leaning forward and handing them out one at a time and i was just like <laughs> oh. and just threw them i just threw them over my shoulder uh, so everyone got one further back but yeah i think that might have been pete and uh, he doesn't remember anything about it but obviously when you're when you're that close to your heroes and you're you're in the audience, you remember those kind of things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That that yeah, it will stand out more to the fan than I guess the the person it happens to. Yeah, he just thought I was some annoying bastard who <laughs> nicked his. Uh, what about uh, Albion Records? Like that, you put out that split uh, on a few years later with Riff Raff. What was the deal with that label?
0: Same thing again. It's it's down to ruin. Albion was a record label that had been put together by the guys who I think they ran the Hope and Anchor. They were really promoters. They weren't really a record label, but they were just trying to get into that whole thing. The only other person I can think of that they put records out was a guy named Ian Gom who'd been in Brinsley Schwartz. So the kind of the the sort of vibe of, of, of pub rock kind of hung over labels like Chiswick and like Stiff. Whereas some of the other labels like step forward and um you know uh, factory um they were kind of all new you know they 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 hadn't come out of there's always that that kind of phase where what went before is still hanging around, yeah, and the new guys come in and and but it was very fruitful you know i think what i mean stiff and Chiswick you know paved the way for making records on your own terms both as a uh artist but also importantly as a label
1: I think also Albion Records too has like a really interesting discography like you know 999 records are on there but they even put out records by the DBs really yeah like they did that's where I like that's where I first became familiar with it just from going to use record stores and buying DB records and then I of course now desperately searching for the riffraff split on that label but yeah it, it's like a it's an interesting discography Robin Hitchcock record as well like it, it really I,
0: I thought I knew about Hitchcock yeah they had a go. They had a right go. I mean, that was a time when anybody could, you know. Mm-hmm. The, punk had opened the door and a lot of people snipped through it. A lot of people who were, you know, not really what you necessarily call classic punk rock, but there was a space for them. All of a sudden, stuff from outside the box was, was possible to get in there. You know, whether it was, you know, punk rock or reggae or kind of weird jazz. There was a lot of amazing music going on at the time. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that I've, that's what, I, that's what I'm obsessed with, um, is this idea that at that moment where, where punk rock finally, it all kind of coalesces and come together, because like, as we've talked about before, you have bands like, you know, Stooges in America, or Dr. Feelgood in England, do, you know, doing this stuff beforehand, yeah. but when it finally kind of clicks, and as you say, opens that door, you have just like a deluge of just so much interesting stuff kind of coming in with it before it gets codified and, and capital P punk is kind
0: of established. Yeah, before it becomes a fashion. Yeah. You know. yeah. But at the time, there was a lot of, you know, uh, space for different people to do different things and all to be part of that um, dispensation, if you like. You know, the music press was open to people who were writing on that ship. I mean, Tom Petty came in that way first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. America Girl fit into that, you know, in some ways, it is close to if you know it will be if you just take American Girl, it's possible to put them in a box with the Flaming Groovies, with the Ramones, you know, with those kind of a, with John from Richmond, you
1: know. Yeah, no, if it had come out on Bomp Records, it would, and that was it. Yeah, it would be a power pop classic.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, it, it's kind of that was what was exciting about that time. Lots of you know, that Roadrunner single song had been around for years, but it took part to make it happen. Yeah, or even Juke, like who you wind up doing that split yep. with years later. Yeah. They've been a they've been a kind of slave type band, haven't they?
1: Yeah, and I I think those singles are, you know, just like it's amazing the stuff that it took punk to kind of turn people on to because, you know, they're just classic kind of punk sounding songs, but before it happened.
0: Yeah. Which is kind of in hindsight, I guess there's always stuff out there knocking around that, but it's bef- until you get that perspective, until you see, you know, the possibilities. You know, it's it's not it's not you're not able really to discern what where it's coming from.
1: Uh, so going back to that Albion single that you did, was Barking Park Lake recorded um, in those same sessions that you were kind of going up and and recording with Ruin
0: for? It, it was. But I think we went in a proper studio to record the single. But yeah, I written I written Barking Park Lake. I think I written the tune, and I wasn't I was didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And I left the, I went back in the house for whatever reason and come back and Wiggy and Robert had written the, written the lyrics. So it was one of those kind of weird things. It's like for Girls, you know, I can't kind of add the riff, but Robert had the lyrics. Mm-hmm. I didn't always have the, everything together at the time. But I'm sure we went into a proper studio and recorded that, although I can't remember off the top of my head, I remember very I really remember the recording the Chiswick songs, but I don't really remember recording the Albion songs.
1: Well, I'm now unfortunately going to punish you because I have never even heard the next four singles that you did, and I'm just fascinated by them. They never seem to show up on the market. Uh, you put up four Ooh, singles in the same year. You're I- up. Uh, can you hear me? Hello.
0: I live in I live in a r- rural fastness on the. Up oh, there, you are going again.
1: <laughs> I can, can, you no, hear me? can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You still there? Yes. Yeah, we we survived the drop that time.
0: Yeah, we, it's mad. <laughs> okay, I'm just putting you on the speaker so we can talk. There we go. Where were we?
1: Well, I was about to. I'm. I, I think it cut off at the right time because I was about to punish you about these geezer records that you did.
0: Oh, oh yeah.
1: Um, they never seemed to show up. Like, were, was it like a really small press run for those things?
0: Yeah, it was actually. It probably wasn't more than about I don't know about 500 of each, if
1: that. Wow. Okay. Um, that makes sense then so what was the deal with that was it like from a completely different session is it all from the same session I assume because they all came out the same year
0: yeah they all came they're all the same sessions yeah we really should have put out a bloody album but uh, we were trying to do something interesting we made little videos as well to go with all of them which is by uh, Jackie O'Loughlin inspired us she was very artistic she'd made a couple of films and we worked with her she made the films and we made the, the songs and we tried to sort of put it out ourselves and, um, you know, be our own, you know, stepping, stepping forward even further into, uh, you know, uh, self empowerment and put out our own records. But, you know, it takes more than just putting records out to put records out. You need, you need distribution and stuff like that. We didn't really think about that. So, uh, you mentioned these videos,
1: where was your kind of hoping these things being shown at that time?
0: Well, you know, Jackie had connections in in the film world. We were hoping to, you know, get them seen uh, as a as much as a promotional tool. I mean, videos are just domestic VHS players that just started appearing. Mm-hmm. So I think we thought we might be able to sell them like almost like video singles, I suppose. Did you actually ever release uh, video
1: cassette versions of the songs too? Not, my knowledge, no. Okay. Yeah, because I've never heard about those things showing up at all. So I, that would blow my mind. It'd be like the damn real to real that we talked about earlier showing up.
0: Probably just as well, Damien. I would think. <laughs> I I'm gotta
1: gonna, I, sorry. Believe go that you haven't seen them. I gotta see them now. But this is like I gotta. You of all people, you. If anyone's gonna find them, you are, mate. <laughs> well, this is now on the the top of the want list now. So, uh, but this is uh so these singles. Is it like? similar sound um because i've actually never gotten a chance to hear these things do they sound the same as the stuff you were doing You've earlier you never heard them no they, they never show up They're, these are really like like legitimately rare records that just t- don't seem to ever show up on the market
0: we about 20 years ago we put them all out on us on a cd to sell at gigs we reissued them all
1: even that is a collectible though now so
0: is it, it? yeah uh-huh.
1: I got. I might just have to buy the CD. I'm a vinyl person, but that's one CD that I'm, I think I might have to
0: break format for. It never was out on uh, on uh, vinyl. It was only on CD because, you know, I used to um, in the '90s we were just knocking out uh, live CDs and and you know weird sessions of stuff that we would just record and sell ourselves at gigs and not through the record company to make you know make money straight off. Mm-hmm. And I was just saying to my partner, Juliet, who now manages me, none of that, none of that stuff is available anymore. None of it's on, uh, it's not on Spotify or any streaming channel. We should go back and look at all that and see if we can get it out there. Because there's some nice stuff there. We went and did, so there's some. There's like a uh, Mermaid Avenue re-record of some, you know, with the, with the band that I was playing at the time, the versions that we would play, how we would play Mermaid Avenue. Some interesting stuff. Oh, that's awesome. I well, listen. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can find down the back of the sofa if I can find a copy of that riffraff uh, CD, and I'll send it to you if I can find it. Oh, I be
1: I would be very much obliged. And if you if you don't, uh, yeah, it's it's now like a one of those things where the CD's now over a hundred dollars itself. So. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there, it's a it's a hard CD to track down now, and and that's the thing is like, you know, you know, as we've talked about, like you had this whole awesome other career that you know obviously leads into the career that you know you're very well known for but like this thing is is legitimate on its own it's, and you know if those last songs had come out as an LP who knows where that could have gone
0: potentially yeah it is and it is a strange kind of thing because in our own little area where we lived in eastern northamptonshire we were quite big you know we had a rep there we had a lot of uh, a lot of respect we were doing you know we were playing uh, there there was a um, there was a pub in a village called Clopton, C-L-O-P-T-O-N, which wasn't really a village. It was like a row of houses and a pub. Okay. And outside the pub, there was a what we call a function room, which is a, like a long, low, what single-story building um, with a bar at one end. And that's where people would have their wedding reception or, you know, their 21st birthday. But also, on a Friday night, You've got to remember, this is 1979. It was the biggest gay club in the east of England. And people, people would come from all over uh, east, east of England and from Europe as well to, to boogie at this club. And we, um, we got in touch with them and see if we could get it for Sunday afternoon and do a, a, you know, a residency every Sunday afternoon and invite local punk bands to come and play with us. Oh, that's awesome. It was awesome. It was really cool because nothing else was going on, on a Sunday afternoon. This is back in the days where everything was closed on Sunday.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's like CBGB Sunday matinees, but yeah. in the rural UK.
0: Yeah, and you know, nothing on nothing on the, the telly. Nothing going on. No football. Nothing. Yeah. Um, and we can't, we started doing this, and it got quite a rep. One of the early ones, uh, the Stranglers came to to uh, rehearse for their um, black and white album, Bear Shanks. And they were there for a couple of weeks. And we got Jean-Jacques Benel, the bass player, to come down and play with us. And that kind of set us up. You know, that gave us a, a, a rep. So who
1: were some of the other bands that were kind of coming up or who were some of the other bands you kind of were playing with at this kind of era? Like locally, I mean, even.
0: Yeah, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good question. There was a band um, uh, from Peterborough um oh, who eventually uh, eventually became the name? It was a little bit later on. There was another band from uh, the, I think they were called the Destructors. Destructors, I think they came from Kim Bolton. Okay. What was the name of this band from Peterborough? Damn, I'm I'm really embarrassed now because my good friend Joe McColl was the drummer in it, and they had a ah, they had a, a song called Development Corporation. Oh, oh, right. oh Co- the Now, the Now, you've got it. Yeah. And oh, it, that's awesome. That's, I love that band. Yeah, it's even more embarrassing because I wrote a song called Here Come the Now, which is really embarrassing. <laughs> but I'm just, just having one of those blank out moments. Yeah, they were they were kind of like the big band in Peterborough. Then there were other bands in places like Kettering. They would come over and play. It was good fun. I mean, you know, it was sort of a, a way to build a bit of a scene there. Mm hmm. As I say, it was miles from any, anywhere. So it was, the only, it was the only thing going on for miles and miles and miles. And, and it was just, I don't know, it just kind of gave us a focus every week. Otherwise, we'd have been drifting a bit, I think.
1: It's also, I like, you know, just the just kind of rhymed off right there. Like, it's, it's almost like after punk supposedly dies, at least in the music press definition, that's when it gets really exciting. That's when you have all these little bands popping off in, in their
0: communities and, and putting out
1: records and, and doing weird yeah.
0: things exactly because the idea we carried the idea off there's a um i don't know if you've read england Dreaming by john savage oh yes of course yeah there's a gig where um he uh complains miserably that this is the end of punk where it's all over it's finally been destroyed and everything it ever stood for has been ruined that gig was the white riot tour night at the rainbow that me and my friends went to <laughs> fired up by what happened when i read that when i read that in the book i was like john you've totally got the wrong end of the stick mate that's the moment where it goes incendiary Mm -hmm. you know yeah you do lose control of it you and your mates who've had control of it for the last 18 months yeah because we find it and we snap off the bits we need and carry them off into the night Mm-hmm. And we take them out and, and pass on the message. So in some ways, I mean, he's right. It was the end of that phase. But for so many of us, it was the spark that lit the fire that still burns in us, you know. So that and I understand, you know, um, how things carry on. I don't, I don't know if you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book about skiffle. Oh, I know. I haven't read that book, but I know the genre a little bit. yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a, well, there's a great documentary made in 1960 after Skiffle's supposed to be over, where they're literally interviewing this kid who's saying that Skiffle is dead in Brighton, and in the background is a Skiffle band playing. <laughs> it's like mad. I don't know, you know. And once you get out of London, I mean, things weren't so, um, you know, uh, national in those days. It was so much more regional music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, things were still going on in other places. You know. Early on in punk, heavy metal was still big in East Northamptonshire. You had to be really careful you didn't go in the wrong pub where they're all heavy metal fans, and they'd sort of get a bit edgy if someone came in with short hair. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could you could hear their flares all flapping in the wind. (laughs) You know, it was if you had if you had um, you know drainpipe trousers on, that was you know the precursor to a fight. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of it was a bit edgy up there sometimes. (laughs) You know, you'd, you'd be like, oh, here we go. But we were the only punks in town. So and because we were from London, we, we kind of like um, garnered a lot of uh, sort of cultural clout for that. We lived in this house in town. We It was like a squat uh, and it was one up, one down and one in the middle. And it was right on the road, the main road from east to west. And big lorries used to come through in the middle of the night and make the whole place shake. And we called it Wobbling Heights. And my manager used to say, Billy didn't go to university, he went to Riff <laughs> And that, that, was, that was where I had all the experiences that you would normally have if you went to university, social, sexual, you know, drug-wise and drink-wise. We had them all when we were riffraff in in Aundel. And it's really weird that we'd leave London and go miles and miles away, but still have that experience.
1: Yeah, well, because it sounds like you almost brought it with you, right? Like you brought that experience with you from life. Well, we
0: we didn't really have it.
1: That's the thing.
0: I mean, we didn't really have it. We read about it. We didn't actually have it with us when we arrived. But the people who were there imagined that we did have it. Yeah, of course. So we kind of did have it, if you know what I mean. I get it now. It's one of those strange things where, you know, I was in East Germany once and I met some East German punks in the 1980s. And my manager Pete had a tiny, tiny little bit of dope that he rolled up for them to have a smoke of. They'd never had a smoke of it, marijuana, before. And he rolled up. It was tiny. It was like a match head. There were six of them. They all took a, a blow, and they were utterly stoned for the rest of the evening, out of their heads. <laughs> because because <laughs> this was it. They finally, they finally, and it was it was it was great to watch and great to be part of. Uh, but yeah. It was um, it was a bit like that with punk rock. The people in East Northamptonshire didn't know punk rock from a hole in the ground, but they found us and we were it, and that was it, and that was good enough for them. And so we were the punk rockers in town. <laughs> Amen to that. Absolutely.
1: What about bands like the Desperate Bicycles and the Rivals and, and all this kind of other stuff that's kind of happening? Like Ace Records, I guess, would have been like uh, what Chiswick rolled into. Were any yeah. was any of that stuff ever you know something you kind of wanted to pursue with Riff Raff or you guys deciding like no we want to do our
0: stuff. On our own. Well, we were kind of on our own by then. You know, the the momentum of punk was dying. Well, we the the key period while we were in uh, East Northamptonshire in this Wobbling Heights place was 1979, and 1979 in in England is the year of Two Tone,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we were kind of out completely outside of that. We were hugely uh, appreciative of it. We were totally into it, but we were nowhere near that. So, and by the end of the year, we, uh, things had kind of the band has started to deteriorate a bit. You know, people were drifting back to London. Uh, the gigs were turning into wine bars. And we didn't have, you know, we didn't have a record deal. We didn't have an agent. So we kind of we kind of lost our we lost our grip on um the the momentum that we had. We lost the momentum. And we we kind of had done all this great stuff, but we didn't really have much to show for it. It's not an uncommon experience for bands, I don't think. Oh, definitely. Uh,
1: what, how much touring did you guys get to do? Did you ever like tour the UK or did you ever make it to Europe?
0: No, no, no. We went we went um, up and down the A1 doing places. It's all word of mouth, really. Mm-hmm. You know, if we had a gig in London, we'd all we'd all jump into a friend's car and go down and do that. But they were mostly support gigs at places like the Red Cow, uh, Hope and Anchor, the Marquee. Um, and then, you know, various uh Kind of like village halls and football clubs around East Northamptonshire. There was a there was a Royal Oak pub in Peterborough. We used to play regularly, but really it was just in our little scene. You know, it never really went much further than that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of come up on the show with people I've talked to from uh, you know England around this time period is the sort of the rise of oi, and then ultimately sort of like the the right wing. Subversion of Oi Did you have to deal with that Or was riffraff Kind of before that Really became an issue
0: Yeah we were kind of Out of the way up there There was no Oi In East Northamptonshire You know Mm -hmm. But it was It was clearly In um, You know Elements of Two-Tone There were um, Certainly uh, Right wing Aspects to that You know The 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 threat of The National Front Was very strong In the 1970s they were, you know, they they in the mid 70s they came third in the citywide elections after Labour and the Tories, which is pretty serious. Mm-hmm. So you know there 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 always was an undercurrent, and they you know when we went that rehearsal studio in um, in Rainham I mentioned when we were you know sort of early early riffraff, it should have been sort of 75 I suppose. There are a bunch of old guys hanging around there who were trying to get some young band tooled up to play music for, you know, national front gigs. Well, I can they, remember
1: That early they were trying to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They were young lads and they were kind of, they were, we were talking to them and they were kind of falling for it. And we were like, mate, you, you know, you've got to be careful what you're doing here. You really, you're being used by these guys, but they would, you know, they weren't having it nothing ever came of it, but they were around all the time. So I wasn't surprised when Oi went that way. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so coming to the end of riffraff, what, what, you know, you mentioned people moving back to London, like what ultimately led to the demise of the band. And do you remember the
0: last show? The last show? Yeah. Well, basically well we, what happened was the, the guy who came around with the, um, the damned reel to reel tape machine ended up being the bass player. Little Kevin, his name was, and the. um, He kind of ended up being a bass player because he was always hanging around. We had to teach him how to play the bass. Mm -hmm. But he was a a really great guy. He was a lovely guy. And um, so there was the four of us, me and Wiggy and Robert, who'd been playing together, you know, went to school together. So we were really tight. And little Kevin, he was a lot of fun. He got ill. Robert didn't want to play anymore. He wanted to go and live in a village outside of the town. Wiggy had gone back to London. I was going to have to go back to London. You know, me and Robert were up there on our own. Um, I was working in a restaurant, washing up in a restaurant, and he was at a job, uh, some sort of building trade thing. So I kinda, it just kind of unraveled, as bands do. So I came back to London at the end of 1979, and it was really only me and Wiggy then, so we recruited a new bass player and a new drummer, but it just wasn't the same. mm mm-hmm. You know when you've when you've been playing with people that you went to school with, and and it's you know you've done things, and it's just it just didn't work out really, it didn't work out, and things had moved on. Everything was synthesizer bands, and it was new romantic period, and the new romantic t- to me was the antithesis of what punk was about because you know whereas punk has said everybody's equal, you know whether you're up on the stage or whether you're in the audience, we're all the same new romantics put someone on the door to say whether or not you could come in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that to me was the, that was the antithesis of punk um so i i guess we didn't know what we would we, you know we didn't there was nowhere for us to really fit in anymore so it kind of ended when we just ran out of gigs and then uh, i joined the army
1: you know, it's funny you mentioned the new romantic stuff and 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 uh, happening. Kind of, it happens at the same time as the oi stuff happening. It's almost like punk splits, and like the pretension becomes a new romantic stuff, and sort of like the working class reality becomes the oi stuff. But it it kind of becomes like you know, the, it, it, they were joined at one point.
0: It felt like they were, and, I, and I've had this argument with with you know people who involved in the new romantics about how they were all part of punk and everything. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm not, you know. Against it, because there were some bands that had elements of it and, uh, and elements of punk that I really admire, like the Skids. They were one of my favourite bands from that period. The Skids,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, when my son uh, was uh, eighteen and went to college, and came home on his first uh, his first break and said to me, "Dad, how come nobody at college has ever heard of the Skids?" <laughs> I knew I'd, I knew I brought him up right. <laughs> yeah, of
1: course, that's awesome. I aim to do that with one of my kids at some point. If they come home, I kn- I know
0: I've done my job. Yeah, that's what he said. He's like, Dad, how can they not know the skits? I'm like, Son, I have to tell you something. Come sit down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Obviously, I, I played them a lot to him as a kid because he's a, he's a guitar player as well. And he kind of like. Kind of loves their kind of like pomp and circumstance. So you know they and they you know Rusty Egan, who was their drummer, was a bit was a a big Blitz kid as well. So I you know I deeply I love his stuff. But when I have a chance to meet him and I told him how much I love his stuff, he was having a go at me for always you know banging about Spandau Ballet, the New Romantics, <laughs> and I was like, well you know. Well, it's like but I mean, but they, they were doing really. They were doing, you know they were doing the same thing. They were self empowering. Mm-hmm. You know, they were say, OK, I'm going to go out dressed in my mum's living room curtains. Yeah. Well, like you're talking about the
1: people early on that were painting their pants, you know, like. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, that was it, that strand of DNA has always been in punk. And it just with New Romantic, it split off again.
0: But it was also there was also a kind of a puritanism in punk as well. Mm-hmm. There was a puritanism in punk. And um, it kept for me. It was uh, it's. Um, sandinista the triple album yeah. i was like no way no <laughs> i didn't sign up for my band to make triple albums i signed up to not you know we're gonna get rid of all this stuff all right london calling is a great great record and i love it dearly but you know they lost me sandinista just out of the idea of a triple album never mind what it sounded like i, I never heard it <laughs> to this day uh, huh the oh, st- i know bits, I, I know bits of it now i do know bits of it okay Intimately as I know the first three albums. A funny thing happened. Um I was doing a festival with the levelers and they invited me up to come and play on Police on My Back. And they wanted me they threw over a bit to me to sing a verse and I just looked at them like blank and then afterwards they like, why don't you sing that verse? I'm like, mate, I've never heard this fucking song. <laughs> I've never heard this. I don't know what it is. How does it go? And they were like, How can you not? But I thought you were a clash fan. And they're a bit yeah, they see they're a bit younger than me. They weren't they weren't in the Clash wars, you know. They didn't they didn't have to go in town having cut their own hair. Yeah, of like, course. You know, like I did. Get, oh. get admonished by old women and 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 beery men. Billy, this is one of my three
1: hundred odd episodes that I've done, and it's got to be one of my favorite ones I've ever gotten into.
0: This is amazing. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad of an old punk rocker
1: oh absolutely well i and also i I just want to know did you before you went into the army of course did you ever try doing solo stuff when you were in riffraff had you experimented with that or
0: no no i'd never done that no i'd kind of been the the band ethic was a lot stronger then Mm -hmm. but i'd always i'd always um had the sense of uh Uh, the singer-songwriter, the power of the singer-songwriter alone on stage. You know, i had been a big fan of people like Bob Dylan and the 60s singer-songwriters, and particularly the political side of it. I was very much inspired by the music of the civil rights movement, the soul side of it, but also the the singer-songwriter side. So when I came, when I got into the army, part part of the reason for going in the army was to finally rid myself of the stupid idea I was ever going to have a career in the music industry. But it didn't, it just made me want to write more. It made me, it, I found it really inspiring. So, in the end, I kind of use it like a sabbatical. So, when I came out and everything was synthesizer bands and floppy haircuts, I thought there's got to be some people who are looking for that back to basics vibe, that feel goods vibe, that rawness, that angle from punk. I can't just have disappeared. There's got to be uh, enough people out there who are still into that to find an audience for myself. How can I reach those people? And it seemed to me that the the best way to do that would be to be solo because that would give me mobility, but with an electric guitar because that would be punk rock. Because if I had an acoustic guitar, they would make me go and play in folk clubs. They wouldn't let me play in the bars and the punk spaces, you know, the rock Mm -hmm. spaces. So the electric guitar was absolutely crucial, and and weird though it is to say now, nobody had done that before. Nobody had ever seen someone go on stage and play New England like it was a Ramon song, which it yeah. kind of is. you know it's kind of it's kind of uh, I want to be a cosmonaut with a better chorus. <laughs> yes, but you know, so that kind of got people's attention. You know, it's you know I if know. I knew how to be successful i'd i'd set up a school and teach people and certain but i don't but i can tell you this there is a moment if you want to create some cultural space for yourself if you can work out how to do a zig when everyone else is zagging you might just find yourself suddenly in a space on your own with an audience that was my experience and and it was punk rock that was behind it because i was trying to get back to to that spirit i missed that spirit in music you know Nobody, nobody seemed to be making the music I wanted to hear. That was, the, that was the feeling I got when I saw Spandau Ballet on top of the Pops. Mm. No one is going to be making music I want to hear. I'm going to have to do it myself. And in some ways, I was angry about that. I was like, fuck, I'm going to have to do it myself, you know? Mm-hmm. And I went upstairs at my mum's house. I picked up my guitar. And everything's been a blur since then to when we just started talking about an hour ago.
1: I, I can remember, actually, I don't I don't think it was Top of the Pops. There used to be some uh, British music program that they would play here on Canadian TV on Much Music. And it was like something where, you know, very much synth bands, and then you're performing. And even as like a young kid, like what you're talking about, something cutting through, like it just cut through
0: so much. Yeah. I remember telling the bloke from the BBC when he said, why don't you get a band and sing in tune? I said, because I'm trying to make people either turn up the radio or turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Which is not really what you wanted to hear, I don't think. But that's that's to me was the the spirit of punk, and I tried to. And I tried to. I've still tried to stay true to that, even though you know, obviously, I don't sound exactly like that anymore. But
1: yeah, like, and obviously, what you're doing is completely. You know, I mean, back then, like, it's completely different than these artists. But there is that kind of like, you know, John Cooper Clark, Patrick Fitzgerald, like doing different things. But like, there's that continuation of sort of like this powerful solo artist voice in punk that that's at the very start of it
0: you know, people don't remember this now but patrick fitzgerald played at the rock against racism gig the first one in victoria park in Hackney. you know where the clash played yeah f- yeah he was on the bill and i remember seeing him and he he got i think he got bottled off wow and i'm getting you know, how stupid to come on stage solo playing a guitar at a gig like this you <laughs> idiot yeah. I remember thinking that. I mean, the thing was he had an acoustic guitar, so he couldn't he couldn't cut them dead. He couldn't cut through. And I think I learned a lesson there when it, when it was my time to tr- step up there on my own and get that adrenaline hit that I was looking for. I remembered Patrick's fate of Vicky Park and made sure that I had an electric guitar mm-hmm. because because basically, I mean, in Riff Raff, I was the rhythm guitar player. You know, I wasn't the, I wasn't the guitarist. I was in the rhythm section. So, you know, I was I was the guy, you'd only really hear what I was playing if I stopped. Then there'd be a space and you'd think, Oh, what's that? And then oh it's gone now. And that's me stopping and starting, you know. Yeah. So if you listen to me my guitar style, it's all it's all the you know, it's all uh right hand. It's not left hand fabulous guitar phrases. It's all right right hand rhythm. Which is the basis of punk anyway, right? Like that that Yeah. Yeah, it's all that, you know, I think apart from Man in the Iron Mask, the whole of life's a riot. is just right hand, right hand, right hand. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, no, it, and, it, and it's like, like you're saying, it's just doing something completely different than
0: everyone else is doing at that time. Yeah, it was. And it was a simple thing as well, because other people could then think, oh, I could do this. You know, that's the other thing you, you want to try and do. You don't want to do something so clever that everyone thinks you're a dick. You want to do People think, yeah, I could do that.
1: How long was it into, you know, the solo career that you realized, like this is this is something that's sustainable for the rest of my life? Like this is,
0: you know. Well, I I think um, early early in 1984. Mm-hmm. I think I've been I started playing in 1982. Word of mouth, and then uh, I recorded um, the. The tape, the right yeah, in 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 the early of nineteen eighty three. It got released in July nineteen eighty three, and then again on Godis later in in October I think eighty three, and that's when it really took off. And but I was still the hardest working support act in showbiz (laughs) in England. But what happened was around January February, I got on the cover of the NME, and I did a residency at the captain's cabin and that, while I showed people I could top the bill and and run the gig, then I started getting, uh, you know, getting my own gigs and my own tours and stuff like that. So, I mean, I'm still amazed it it, it still runs and I'm still able to do it. I feel really privileged. Obviously at a time like this, when everything's on hold, you think to yourself, you know, is it all going to come back how it was? But even if it doesn't come back how it was, I still think I'll be able to find a a space Mm -hmm. to do what I do. And, and I realise that's a, I'm very privileged in that sense. You know, I've been very fortunate.
1: Well, it's the songs, right? The songs that were there from riffraff till till now. Yep. Right. It's
0: the songs. It's the songs. It's the gigs. You know, I mean, I'm very much a, a a performance person, and I try and connect with my audiences. It's it's you know it's these are strange times, but I do think that once they're over, people will want to get back together again in the dark and have that that. That feeling of, uh, you know, sort of social solidarity that you get at a gig, mm-hmm. the solidarity of song. It's not a political thing. It's just a, a sense that you're together. You know, over the over time, I've I've come to realise that it's not really um, about uh, changing the world doing doing these gigs it's about offering people a different perspective and sort of sending them home feeling as if they're not alone music has the opportunity to do that you know
1: absolutely and every once in a while
0: you you're someone's jam at the rainbow yeah exactly every now and then someone connects with you Mm -hmm. and and that's that's you know that's priceless that when you get that feeling
1: Well, Billy, I've talked to you for a long time, and I could talk to you forever. Like, we've barely even scratched the surface. Would you come back at some point down the line for a part two?
0: Sure, sure. When the riffraff record comes out.
1: Yeah, that would be amazing. But before I let you go, I just want to talk to you once again about labels. Go Disc Records, like, you know, obviously put out your records, which are, you know, key records to music around the world. But also, like, they put out, you know, everything from Beautiful South to The Laws. Like, it's a really interesting label that once again comes out of Stiff Records.
0: Yeah. Uh, Weller, they put Weller out.
1: Yeah, Paul, absolutely. Yeah, sorry, too. Yeah, of course, not to
0: overshadow that. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, it was a really good space to be, a good place to be. The people who worked there really believed in music and believed in us, you know, believed in the artists. And, you know, I remember that when the House Martins were desperately trying to get signed by GoDisc, and I was trying to do my best to help them out get there, you know, because they knew that people there were enthusiastic about music. They were very, very supportive of what we were trying to do. And they were a great little label.
1: It's almost like a parallel thing that that's going on through Godis Records to what's happening in America at that time with like Homestead Records and and early sub pop
0: stuff, where you have kind of like the bubbling up of a new scene. It is, yeah, and I mean, I always kind of found you know those those places where you went where the you know there was a, a label or a scene in the city. I found I always found that really exciting. Because that you know there was there was an aspect of that away from the centre that we were doing ourselves in Riff in the in the late seventies. I got a bit of a vibe from that meeting bands out in the sticks in America and Canada.
1: Yeah, no, it also feels like you know like the the stuff that was happening on Go Disc is almost like the direct precursor to the alternative uh, Britpop. You know, whatever scene comes, you know, yeah. down the line. I guess
0: you know, with the you know, I think the the um, you know the the House Martins had an element of Britpop in them.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: they, they had a bit of that sensibility there, although not so guitar driven, but they had, a, you know, the way they were writing and the, you know, they were, re- they were kind of regional, the House Martins, you know, they were from Hull. And, uh, and that was a key part of what Britpop was about. It wasn't just about London.
1: Yeah. You know, and was, it just feels like even, even yourself, like the idea of bringing it back to roots of music and, and, and trying to be real, like obviously Britpop becomes something else eventually too, but it just feels like the you know, laws is another example. Like the, the scene that was kind of happening was like that, you know, much in the way punk was earlier, like that alternative scene originally was almost like a return to the roots in the same way punk was a few years well, later.
0: I have a, th- I have a theory, Damien, and it is that when music gets stale, the way forward can often be found at the back of the cheapo rack in your local record store. But you know, you know what I'm saying? It's that stuff I know. that stuff at the back of the rack that no one's interested in anymore. Sometimes as the seeds of the way forward. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Well anytime you want to come back here and talk about the way forward, please know <laughs> the door is always open. You're very, you're very kind, Damien. i
0: really enjoyed talking to you, mate.
1: Thank you, Billy, for coming on the show when you're right there. Billy will be back for part two After the show, Billy's like I really want to do that part two with you I really enjoyed that And that's all the praise I need You know, I don't I don't care that we're not one of the most popular podcasts I don't care that we don't win those podcast awards All I care about is that Billy Bragg wants to come back and do a part two Woof Woof, that'll be coming in the future We're going to be getting more with Billy Bragg Because uh, there's a lot more to discuss There's a lot more to discuss I didn't even ask him about being on CD Presents You know, but that's for the part two That is for that part two. Speaking of stuff that's coming up in the future, right now, as we all know, when you think of Turned Out of Punk, you think about one thing, and that is sports. We love the sports here at Turned Out of Punk. We're always talking about sports around here. And this time of year, when you love sports like we do here at Turned Out of Punk, you know it's time for one thing and one thing only. And that is the World Series of Baseball. And this year in the World Series... There are two teams. I'm pretty sure one is the LA Dodgers. Uh, Is the other one the Mets? Could it be the Mets? No, those would be both National League teams. There is another team playing in the World Series. But because of that, it is World Series week here at Turned Out of Punk. Uh, A World Series weekend, I should say, at Turned Out of Punk. Because we have, in terms of punk rock, the greatest Baseball player of all time This is someone that I've wanted to talk to Way before I had this podcast I've wanted to talk to this guy for years Because in addition to playing the baseball He is also the lead singer Or former lead singer of Scared Straight 10 Foot Pole And Pulley I am talking about one Mr. Scott Radinsky That's right, Scott Radinsky will be here Because it's World Series week he and I talk the baseball, we talk the punk rock, and you better be damn sure we talk the nerdcore. So that will be coming up for you this weekend on Turned Out a Punk. Woof! Thank you everyone for listening. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We have to protect trans kids. We have to protect trans people. Go out there, get involved, read, uh, sign petitions, show up. Uh, now's the time, you know. Like right now, look at the world around us. It sucks, but we can make it better. I know we can. We just gotta say one thing first, and that's fuck fascism, and then we can we can move on and, and tackle some other problems. We gotta we gotta confront fascism in all its forms, and just say, yo, fuck you. We don't want you here. Uh, so please, you know, go out there and and read up as much as you can. Uh, you know, I, I that whole educate yourself thing can go awry because you know people uh. People put a lot of bullshit out there on the internet, but go to trusted sources, go to reliable sources and, and get informed, you know, read about what's happening right now. And it's not wild conspiracy theories. This is stuff that's actually happening, actually being documented right now. Abuse of people, mistreatment of people, uh, horrible racism. Uh, and it's not just in America. I know a lot of people like picking on, uh, America and there's certainly problems there, but. Right here in Canada, look what's going on in Nova Scotia right now with Indigenous people and the lobster fisheries. It is disgusting to see the treatment that's happening to Indigenous people in Canada. So please, please, please go out there and get informed. Sign petitions. Signing petitions is fucking easy. You could just sit there at your job and just click, sign petition, click, sign petition. And if you have some money, you know, donate some money to people that are, you know, doing the activist work. And, you know, hopefully we can... We can make a change, you know, be like a punk rock song and and just, you know, like Billy Bragg, you know, just inspire change by, by, you know, bringing people together and kind of exposing them to different points of view. That's what Billy said. And that's what, that's all we can try and do right now. Okay. Also remember, you know, uh, go out there and make your own culture, put, put something out into the world, be it a band, a fanzine, uh, a podcast. There's a lot of these podcasts right now. So maybe not a podcast, but, but do something, go out there, get involved Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. You're going to be like, Hey, you know what? I don't need this shit. Take it. Give someone else a life there. Boom. Uh, and, and that's wear a mask, wash your hands, stay safe. Everyone, please stay safe. I love you. And I will talk to you next episode. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Billy Bragg. How fucking sick was that?